The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, December 31st, the Good Riddance 2020 edition. Hey, welcome everyone. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm a writer at Slate. I'm the author of the book, How to Be a Family. I'm the dad of Harper, who's 13, and Lyra, who's 15. And I'm welcoming you to our clip show. That's right. In the long and proud tradition of network sitcoms, burning off an episode with a collection of clips from the years past. We're doing the exact same thing because it's the holidays and we're all with our families and we want to make sure you have something to listen to, but we don't want to abandon our families to do it. So today on the show, we are going to steal that classic holiday format to give you a chance to hear a compilation of all the great Slate Plus segments that we've run over the course of the year. Think of this as a way to peek behind the curtain at what it is Slate Plus members get all the time. And if you like what you hear, you could uh, consider signing up for Slate Plus. It's only $35 for the first year. Slate.com slash mom and dad plus. And if you are a plus listener, first of all, thank you. We love you more than the other listeners. I just hate to say it, but it's true. Uh, your support really makes the show possible. So enjoy the show as a reminder of <clears throat> stuff you've already heard. But also, we have a separate, never-before-heard plus segment just for you. An incredible moment captured live during a taping that we have never forgotten. So you will enjoy that. Enjoy, everyone. And thanks for listening to Mom and Dad are Fighting in 2020, the worst year. Beloved former Mom and Dad are Fighting co-host Allison Benedict here today with a wild story that involves a shower ode to a neighborhood critter and also a call to the feds. Uh, all right, Allison, take us back to the beginning. All of a sudden on Slack, a couple days ago, we receive a very excited message from you about what is going on in your neighborhood. What happened in the wilds of New Jersey? So for a couple of days, we've been hearing that there was a sick raccoon hanging around the neighborhood. Like my kids would be playing outside and a neighbor would text and say, your kids are out, but I saw a raccoon. The raccoon's back. Be careful about the raccoon. And I had been ignoring this. And then late last week, there was just a lot of commotion. I was in the office. It was my day to work. And the kids come like running up the stairs to the attic office, screaming, we found a raccoon. We've named him Dusty. Um, can we keep him? Can we keep him? And I was like, no, we definitely cannot keep this raccoon. They had Wally, who's the youngest, who's seven, said he had a plan. Like, we can feed him trash and it'll be great. And I said, absolutely not. We cannot keep a raccoon. Send them outside. I didn't leave. I just sent them back outside and said, do not touch the raccoon and tried to continue my work. But then there was like a lot of commotion outside with the neighbors. Finally, I go out. Apparently, John, my husband, had called. (laughs) First, he called the cops, which... (laughs) I don't, I'm not sure that's what you're supposed to do. Very questionable. <laughs> um, and the cops told him to call animal control. Animal control said, we'll be there in an hour. Do not take your eyes off the raccoon. So the neighbors are out. Everyone's like, the, the raccoon is in our bushes, and everyone's kind of surrounding our yard to make sure that the raccoon can't get past them, forming like a human shield. And I come out, and John says... Honey, I have dinner on the stove, so you either have to watch this raccoon or finish cooking, which, if you know me, is a real Sophie's choice. <laughs> so, this is absolutely Sophie's choice, too, yeah. Yeah, I choose raccoon. Immediately, everyone else is chill about this. The kids are, like, really into it, and then the neighbors are like, yeah, we're watching a raccoon. But I see those beady eyes, and it starts, like— 
it's very injured, so it's, like, pretty slow. But it's coming, you know, it's making its way out of the bushes toward me. I'm, like, a child shrieking. Maybe not even, like, a child because the children were doing fine. I am, like, me shrieking uh, and running. So eventually we decide it's not working, so we switch. John comes back out. I go inside. I let whatever he was cooking burn. But he somehow captures the raccoon under a garbage can and ties the garbage can down. Then the raccoon is trapped. We can all, like, get on with our late afternoon. The kids are kind of upset that this raccoon is trapped. This was going to be their pet. This was going to be their pet. Can you go into a little more detail about Wally's plan for how Dusty would live with you? Like, did he make an affirmative case, for example, that you would be cutting down on landfill use because you would be feeding your trash to Dusty? No, it wasn't that thought out, but he would take care of him. Mm -hmm. So one thing to know is that we are going to be in like a little lake house for part of the summer. And they're very excited about this because they plan to trap a rabbit. (laughs) So they've been talking about (laughs) trapping a rabbit for several weeks. They're like obsessed with it. They've Googled how to trap a rabbit. So I feel like this sort of took the place of that or this was like a dry run for them. And they were like, if we can get this raccoon and make this raccoon love us the same will happen with a rabbit this summer anyway it was exciting we're back inside we tell wally take a shower he is singing in the shower a song that he made up a very good song he made up called there's a raccoon in the front yard i believe we have a clip of that song we can play right now yeah And then animal control shows up and she lifts the garbage can and all of a sudden the raccoon is fast again and darts out. So all of our time, like actually doing a good job trapping this raccoon is lost, but she finally captures the raccoon and it's kind of a violent situation and the kids are in their PJs and kind of panicked and cut to the next day when I hear Wally on a Zoom with his first grade class saying, did you guys know that put to sleep doesn't really mean go to sleep? (laughs) and that is the story of dusty the raccoon the animal control woman did not think dusty had rabies she thought he had distemper and cataracts to which the kids said like can't he just get cataract surgery because that's what their grandparents have done surely you would pay for cataract surgery for your beloved pet dusty right it's a really good story i'm happy that you told me a little more about their plans for making Dusty your pet. I'm also very curious about this rabbit and what will happen when you're at this lake house. Do you believe that the experience with the raccoon has turned them off? No. Of their idea to capture and make a rabbit love them? If anything, no. it has heightened their excitement about capturing a wild animal. And They don't have a sense that it could end badly. For the animal as or it themselves? As did for Dusty. No, I think they understand we wouldn't call animal control on a rabbit, so... Sure, Yeah. Pause. Sam, 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 Sam. Sam, Sam, I'm literally doing a podcast right now. Guys, I'm doing a podcast. (laughs) I'll be down in a second. We're keeping all of this. We're keeping all of this, by the way. Sam and Harry, go. Shut up, Harry! Did one of them call the other a piece of shit? (laughs) Uh, Allison, this is everything I wanted out of a Slate Plus segment. Thank you. We're keeping every single minute. It's all going in. It's going to be fine. Don't worry. I will not let them really 
trap a poor rabbit. I just don't think they'll ever be able to, so I'm not worried <laughs> in the slightest. Like you guys could barely capture an injured, distempered, blind raccoon. It's true. It was hard. Glad to know that you are on it, that you are, as usual, not answering your mail or reading your mail, and that John is a narc. I'm glad you've learned all these things about your family. As always, the Cook Benedict family is my favorite family in America. Thank you. <laughs> Talk to you later. Thanks. Bye, guys. Today, we thought it'd be great to address some of the other questions um, that we received in the past couple of weeks that we didn't get to in the main show. One of them centers around colorism and bias based on complexion, which is a nuanced but very important aspect of talking to your children about race and racism. So we had to bring in the big guns. Joining me today is Dr. Kira Banks. She is a clinical psychologist and associate professor at St. Louis University and a researcher on issues of race, racial identity, and the effects of discrimination on mental health. Dr. Banks facilitates difficult dialogues, consults on equity and diversity, including for the Ferguson Commission. And on top of it all, she hosts a show, Raising Equity, and we'll have a link to that in our show notes. She's doing a lot, as so many of us are. But girl, I'm not doing nearly as much as you are, Dr. Banks. So thank you for your work. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Yes, thank you for joining us. It's such a small world. I met your husband in Ferguson. I was down there doing some work for Ebony in 2014, and we later connected with him to do some photography for the magazine. You all have such an amazing family. Oh, thank you. The work that both of you all are doing on behalf of our people is so meaningful and so powerful. So I was really excited when our friend connected you and I, and I realized that you were the Dr. Kira Banks. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it is a small world. And he was, he was definitely out there more than I was in Ferguson, I was doing a lot of behind the scenes work in terms of like mental health support. And so it's always interesting, like the people that he knows are different than the people that I know. And so the world is so small. Um, and then also we're sorority sisters. We are sorority sisters. I didn't know that. Aaron, just let me know. Oh, you know what? Now that you, you mentioned that, I think he told me that when we met. It's been six years. Uh, right. Can you believe it? There's some days when I like can't believe it. And there's some days where it feels like it was yesterday. It ebbs, it ebbs and flows. Absolutely. So much work that you were doing at that time and so much more work that has come around since then. And so many important conversations that... Many of us have been having with our children all along because, yes. uh, as we talked about earlier, it's not an option for Black parents to talk about race and racism, something we're not sheltered from. But finally, other families and folks are bringing their children into these conversations, many of them in ways that are hopefully going to be beneficial and positive. And there are some complicated nuances when it relates to how we speak to our children uh, about race even those of us that are people of color and have so much more experience. And one of the most nuanced, complicated issues within those conversations has to do with colorism uh, and complexion bias. So let's hear the first one and talk about it. Hi, mom and dad. I was hoping you could give me some advice on talking to my biracial children about race and privilege. I am biracial and my husband is white. My 16 and 11-year-old daughters look white. My 14-year-old son inherited at least some of my melanin and is much more obviously a person of color than his sisters. How do I talk to them about the white privilege their father and my daughter will have based on their appearances? How do I talk about the bias my son will have to contend with throughout his life? 
We don't have black family members to talk about this with, as my father died when I was very young, and I never really had any relationship with his family. We have talked about racism and the history of black, indigenous, and people of color in the U.S. throughout their lives, but I have now realized that we've never talked about the ways that three of them will be seen and treated differently. That's heavy. It is and it isn't, right? So it's heavy, but if you're as a family willing to have these conversations, you have willing parties who have different experiences right there under the same roof. So it's it's an opportunity, right? You have people who are maybe white presenting or white passing. You have folks who identify as white. You have a young man who is probably identified as a person of color, but I don't know how he identifies himself, right? And then mom who identifies as biracial. And so it's, it's a real opportunity to simply notice and pay attention to how the world perceives them, but also to make sure you highlight the fact that you get to self-identify, right? Like that as a young man and the young women as well, like the world might perceive you in some ways, and that's going to lead to differential experiences and, and to be willing to notice that and point it out, but also to make sure that they have the agency to self-identify. They get to identify how they want to identify. And oftentimes when you have multiracial families, kids are made to feel like they have to choose. You want to make sure that, that you don't make them feel like they have to make a choice or pick. So I think it's a matter of being open to noticing and paying attention to what's happening. Oh, do you notice how your sister was treated this way or they expected this from her, but when you came in, they made these assumptions. That's about them and the things that they think about people, right? That's not about you. That's not a reflection on you. We're the same family. You know, we have the same values. That's really something that I want you to understand that you don't, you shouldn't own about who you are. That is their stuff. That's what they believe. I think what makes this set of circumstances somewhat unique compared to other letters that we've gotten for certain and other stories I've heard from families that are grappling with these sort of issues is that because the letter writer herself is biracial and did not have, from what it sounds like, that sort of foundation in her own upbringing, right, so that the language is unfamiliar and that perhaps there were not as many complicated conversations about the nature of mixed race identity and specifically mixed race black identity. And so now having to interrogate that with children who, you know, two of whom are white passing and the third is not uh, definitely um, speaks to a set of experiences that she herself perhaps can't fully identify with because her own walk as a biracial woman um, has been different because it was guided largely by a white mother. Right. And so this is an invitation for her to, to deepen her analysis. And I know that might feel scary and overwhelming. Maybe that's the psychologist in me that thinks it's exciting and juicy and it's an opportunity <laughs> to lean in. And I, I use in my raising equity work, I use this framework to think about how we can raise equity nerds, right? Like we think about engaging our kids in select sports and rigorous academics, but we often don't think about how to get rigorous with them around social issues. And so it's an acronym that can help people think about how they do that. So you can you can think about how you in name what's happening. So to name maybe colorism that's happening or prejudice or discrimination on the basis of race that's happening, which will happen differently for the people in the family or name the privilege that some are getting that others aren't in the family. And then you want to educate yourself about the backstory. Like how did we get here? What's the story behind this? So that you can then R reframe it so that it's 
okay, yes, my sister might be being treated this way. This might be some white privilege that she's experiencing that I'm not, but it's not just about us as individuals. It is, but there's this pattern, right? Like there's a history in our country that is systematically advantaged white folks and systematically disadvantaged black and indigenous folks of color. And so to reframe it so that you can see the pattern and then D dream up solutions. Like what would it look like for us all to be able to walk into a store and be treated with respect or whatever that is? Like how would you dream up a solution to, for things to be more equitable and then S start to act? What's the next smallest possible step that you can take that would move us towards equity? So I would invite this mother into reflecting and practicing naming what's happening so that she can maybe learn along with her children about these topics rather than feeling like she has to know it all. They can learn together and notice together and walk through that equity nerds framework together. There's a book that I want to recommend and then I would like to hear what sort of readings you recommend for this letter writer and other parents who may be grappling with issues of mixed race identity, as well as just speaking to your children about race and privilege, regardless of what their backgrounds may be. And I mentioned this book, I'm sure a few times on the show at this point, Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum's Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? And it takes on racial identity development in children and talks about, you know, how the way that we see ourselves is constructed as a result of our experiences at home, when we go out into school, when we consume media. And there's a lot of really kind of eye-opening information about what that looks like for mixed-race children in relation to their parents. So obviously, there are children that are very obviously, you know, you can see the parent of color in them immediately, and they're likely to be identified as such, or, you know, perhaps as somebody who is of mixed heritage. But the headline, if you will, is that they are Black or that they are, you know, Asian. But the mixed part may be not as obvious to the casual observer, or it may not be relevant at all, because if you're perceived to be Black, you are Black, and everything else is in the eyes of the beholder. But what other books do you recommend, Dr. Banks, that could be of use to this letter writer? Well, we're of the same mind, because that's an only but goody. And uh, Dr. Tatum was a mentor of mine in undergrad. So she shaped a lot of my thinking. And so my research on racial identity started with her. And it started under her under her mentorship. And then Bill Cross, who was at UMass Amherst, also did a lot of research on uh, racial identity for black folks, and how we come to understand ourselves. So that's a great one. And they just came out with the 20th anniversary edition a couple of years ago. So make sure to get the newer edition because there's more information. Yeah, that's a solid one that I would say the other ones that I can think of are more academic in nature. Uh, colorism has become a really big topic in the academic world in the past few years. I have a few chapters that I've written on the topic, but it's all uber academic. It's not really accessible. So I don't know that I recommend it. Have you read The Color Complex? I haven't. I think the first time I read The Color Complex, I may have been in middle school. So it's been around for quite some time. It's written by a black male author, a black female author, a white female author. And it takes on this complicated issue of complexion bias and specifically how it informs the experiences of Black folks and something that um, a lot of folks outside of our community don't necessarily understand, though they're quite capable of perpetuating it, is that there is a hierarchy of privilege that in many ways is aligned with how dark you are. When it comes to most measurable outcomes, right, when we look at quality of life, 
darker complexion people suffer more. It's reflected in statistics around partnership and marriage. It's reflected in statistics around economics from employment to success in the workplace. And it is devastating. And it is a system of bias and privilege that Black folks are quite capable of perpetuating and inadvertently we're exposed to, I think, a lot more diversity in terms of the complexions and the hair textures that we see in media today, certainly than in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, when you saw most of the Black people that you saw on television were going to have their hair chemically or heat straightened. And, you know, nearly all of the women were going to be of a lighter complexion if they were portraying a romantic lead or interest of some sort. And we still have a very long way to go in changing and diversifying, you know, the representation of Black people in media, I I would argue, particularly as it relates to women. Anyway, the color complex takes a look at what colorism is on a global scale and uh, focuses specifically on how it impacts the lives of African-Americans or say Mm -hmm. people of African descent in America. Yeah. And I think that it's important, like you said, it's global. So in our research in colorism, we've seen it also manifest in some East Asian, South Asian cultures and some cultures in South America, Brazil in particular, there's a really big color hierarchy. And so you're right. We developed actually a colleague of mine developed a measure of colorism, like the extent to which you endorse those attitudes. And you mentioned, right, attraction, who you're affiliated with, your self-concept, right? So who you want to be associated with, those sorts of dynamics are definitely impacted by those ideas and those messages. And so it is important for us to interrogate that and to not play into those negative narratives based on skin tone. Many of us are having conversations with our children that are much like the conversations we would have been having if there wasn't a news moment that forced them. And a lot of parents are having these conversations for the first time. What sort of advice do you offer for helping us to introduce the concept of equity to our children as opposed to equality? I think kids are primed to understand it because they they so know about fairness and justice. They know what's fair and that's unfair, right? And so I talk to my children and other children, right, about helping them understand how things are set up, the rules. For example, and when it comes to schools, my boys were in, a, I think it was chess club, and they went around to different schools for meets. And my oldest was maybe seven or eight. And he could tell you which ones had better playgrounds, which ones were nicer buildings, right? And so we started to talk about the difference in school options and how schools were funded and how in some ways we talked about how property taxes and how much the houses are worth is often linked to how much funding the schools have. And so he was able to say, well, that's not fair because a kid who has not as big of a house or doesn't, you know, they should have a good education too. And so we were able to, to start to talk about how we have created disparate experiences in our society on the basis of class, on the basis of race. And so that gave us an opportunity to talk about, well, what would be a more fair and just way to do this? Well, would it be fair to give, you know, every school new iPads? And he's like, well, but this school might already have that because they have a lot of things already. 
It would be right. We need to think about what this other school might need. And so kids get it. They get that it's not just about making sure everyone has the same. They understand that it's important to think about what's in the environment, what what's fair for what's going on. And then it's also important to show them how we've created those unfair and unjust circumstances, not just how we solve for them. I also think specific to what's happening now in terms of police violence, one of the conversations I've had with my children is the history of policing. Its roots are are very much intertwined with racism as a way to police the black body during the institution of slavery, during Jim Crow, the way in which we often saw the KKK and the police as one in the same because they often were one in the same. And so trying to help them understand that the system's have been set up in a way that aren't fair and aren't just. And so that helps us understand what's happening today, but that helps us also understand how we might interrupt. Dr. Banks, thank you so much. We're linking to Dr. Banks's website in the show notes so you can follow Raising Equity and the great work that she's doing and check out the Raising Equity podcast. We really appreciate you and thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thanks for giving attention to the important topic. Talking to our kids about race is important and specifically colorism is one that we need to we need to be willing to address. Definitely. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. These days, we are all screaming into the void. In fact, the government of Iceland even just released an initiative in which you can record your scream and they will blast the sound of your scream across the lonely fjords of northern Iceland. But sometimes... You need a little bit more than that. You need to know that someone out there hears you. Well, we are here for you, listeners, Slate Plus listeners. Last week, one of our listeners, Teresa, posted on the Facebook group asking for us to just do a rapid fire rage session on the show. She wrote, no advice needed, just a chance for us to cry out into the void and know that at least Shasha Leonard has heard us. And we are here for you, Teresa and everyone. We got so many replies from frustrated parents. So we picked a few to shout here on the show. And as promised, to listen to your cries is Slate's own Shasha Leonard. Hey, Shasha. Hey. Thank you so much for joining us. We're also joined by Gus, Shasha's adorable bird, who's <laughs> flitting around in the background. Gus also will be hearing you. But let's begin. Elizabeth, read one of the shouts we got from our listeners. If I have to watch Cars or Buzz and Woody one more time, I think my brain will melt out of my nose due to underuse. We own all the streaming services. Can we please just watch something else? Wow, that must be really difficult. I can feel your brain cells dying as we speak. <laughs> Being mean on Facebook doesn't make things better or help anyone grow. And frankly, I'm sick of reading it. Signed, tired of your outrage. 
<laughs> Social media is such a terrible thing because you need it more than ever now. But also, it's the worst thing right now for your mental health. Our babysitter told us she was following social distancing guidelines, but then I found out she's been going to maskless gatherings every weekend. My trust is violated. That's terrible. And I hear you. Literally everything feels like the absolute last straw. I feel like a toddler flipping out because my sleeve is touching my hand and my actual toddler is off the charts. Sincerely, area woman yelling at baby bird. (laughs) What? Gus, Gus, don't take it personally. My bird literally is trying to hide behind my hair at that comment. I can't relate, but I feel for you and I'm sorry. (laughs) I love birds. I'm about to drive my daughter 900 miles back to school when we all know a few weeks later they're going to send them back home from campus again. College kids are worse at social distancing than preschoolers. Well, you know what? That's bullshit. That's really bullshit that you have to drive your daughter 900 miles and only to drive her back afterwards because no one knows what the hell's going on. I'm really sorry. Hey, waking me up at 4 a.m. on a Saturday because you can't wait to play Animal Crossing is not an emergency. Signed. Pandemic out in Princeton. I relate to this question. I was getting up at five to check turnip prices. And um, you know what? Just give your child the switch. I think that there's nothing bad that they can do on that console, on that video game especially. And that would save you some sleep. That's extremely good advice. Not only does Shasha (laughs) hear you, she has the cure. Next. Kid, I'm tired of only spending time with you too. Signed, mom also misses her friends. That must be really hard. It seems like kids always get the, you know, the first everything. And and you as a person, you need friends as well. Maybe you should call them and lock your child in a in a room for a bit while you do that. <laughs> I have no children, by the way. So <laughs> No, that's great. Great advice. You know what this pandemic is really highlighting? The patriarchy is not dead. Signed. I was always a feminist, but now I'm an angry one. I have so much to say to this, and it was only like a sentence. Oh my gosh, if the layers aren't just peeling off of like the proverbial wall and all the cracks and like weird shit, not weird shit, terrible, fucked up shit behind it appears, it's been there the entire time. But I mean, if this pandemic hasn't opened, hopefully a lot of our eyes to all that bad shit happening, it's the patriarchy most of all, because you knew it was there and it's only worse, which, you know, I'm an optimist. I would like to believe that one day it'll be better, but uh, it's kind of hard to imagine that right now. So I'm right there with you. I'm sorry. (laughs) That was so good. (sighs) I like put my fist in the air. (laughs) Yeah, that's good. Your bird flew away. No senior administrator on my school's district info call. I'm not enjoying my staycation. Signed, quarantine isn't a break. Oh my God. No, it's not. Some people still have to work. Some people like work in service and still have to go in. Some people work from home and have to take care of their kids full time. I don't love this branding of this pandemic, like quarantine time as vacation or like a time for self-care because the world is burning and no one is on vacation right now. Well, we're not. I mean, the 1% always is, but you know, anyway, I feel you. Screw them. (laughs) This has been... Being heard by Shasha and also being instigated to riot by Shasha. What an amazing segment this was. Shasha Leonard, thank you so much for being here and for hearing our feelings. We love you. Thank you. I love you all. I don't deserve to be here. (laughs) 
So it's the run-up to July 4th, which means it is just about fireworks season. In some big cities, like New York, it is already fireworks season. We are receiving reports that apparently professional-grade fireworks are going off every night in Brooklyn. I'm happy that is not currently happening to me. But of course... Fireworks are just a part of the summer and there are, you know, the fireworks that the city sets off where you go sit on a blanket in the park in olden times pre-COVID and you would watch them while the symphony plays the 1812 overture or whatever. But today we are talking about amateur fireworks, glorious amateur fireworks, sketchy ass fireworks that you drive across the border to South Carolina or Illinois to buy and then you set them off on in the street at like 11 o'clock at night, and then you run before anyone comes out of their house to yell at you. Jamila and Elizabeth, when you guys were kids, did your parents let you set off fireworks? And what happened when they did? Hell no. (laughs) Absolutely not. I had no desire to indulge in such foolishness. And I think it's driving from Illinois to Indiana. uh, In Wisconsin, we always had to go to Illinois. Maybe. I, yeah, I felt like most of the people I knew that were doing it in Chicago, they were going to Indiana. I, mean, I guess it's also where we were. I don't know. Maybe they were selling them in the sun downtown parts of Illinois. Mm-hmm. And that's why folks weren't going uh, there to get them. But either way, no, I hate, I hate, I hate amateur fireworks. And I've only, I've lived in Chicago, Washington, D.C., Brooklyn, New York, and now Inglewood, California. I've never had a break from these fireworks and I hate, I hate them. I'm tired. One woke me up last night and that's something that's never happened before. Like it woke me up. I hate it. I'm also terrified of blowing my hand off with fireworks. So uh, (laughs) (laughs) this fear, I think I've had since I was a child. I mean, we were allowed to have like little sparklers and that was like enough um, excitement for me. But uh, when we lived in the Netherlands, they, for the, New Year's and then like the day before and maybe the day after is just like unrestricted fireworks purchasing. So the whole rest of the year, you may not have fireworks. And then about like a month before New Year's, they let you come buy as many as you want. And you can only set them off on these days. And you can Google YouTube for videos of this because it's completely insane. And uh, I can post one too. Then they just let everybody go and light as many as they want on New Year's in these old towns and everywhere. And it is like being under siege and the children set them off down like the alleyways in the town and they're going everywhere. And as if I wasn't scared enough, I decided that you know, since we were living there, I needed to like really go see it. And we, my parents were visiting. So they were going to stay with the kids and we were going to bike into town. And I got like a block and one like shot in front of my face. And I was like, yeah, I don't care. I'm going home. So and those medieval like, <laughs> towns famous yeah. for burning down like 25 yes, yes, I mean, times it's over terrifying. the course of like history. They, it, is, it is such a problem that they lock the garbage cans and stuff because people throw them in there and they throw them down in the sewers and they, I guess they figure get it all out. But It's like Rumspring in the Netherlands. Yeah, so I moved from there to Florida where people just do that, you know, whenever, for whatever reason. And I'm sure if you looked up Florida Man Firework, there's a million <laughs> terrible things that have happened. But I agree, they've been going off like... Like, full ones that you can see, you know, forever going off here. The sound doesn't really bother me because since we live so close to the military base, like, they're bombing all the time. I don't know whether it's fireworks or the the range. Um, but, <laughs> I mean, someone's going to get hurt. I mean, I think people really do get hurt. It's not like, oh, someone's going to get hurt. I think people do get hurt. 
Are they not reporting it on the news anymore? Because I feel like when I was a kid, there was always like last night, you know, a child lost his finger. Like, is that just not important? Is that I mean, not a big enough bigger, story? We have anymore? bigger problems. Now. I will. I, all right, I can't believe that I have to be the lonely guy who stands up for shitty amateur fireworks. On uh, Muhammad Adder fighting, a I think the fireworks are a lot less likely to blow your hand off now than they were when we were kids. What you think? You like fireworks technology has gotten better, like sure, so yeah. much better Safe than it's like. I mean, I think the regulatory state has really done a great job on the illegal fireworks industry. Look, I don't know if kids are still blowing their fingers off. If you are a listener and you've blown your finger off, please let us know. But I would like to stand up for what I think is an essentially harmless tradition of on July Fourth going out into your street with a couple of things that like blow sparks in the sky and spin around and make whirr noises and like send out different colors of smoke and with a responsible adult somewhere near lighting them running away screaming and then watching them go off with great joy and delight like that was an indelible part of my childhood on sheffield avenue in whitefish bay wisconsin and we would only do it on july 4th that was the special day. It wasn't a law or anything. That was just the day that we could get our parents to agree to it. And we loved it. Now, I recognize that if you live in an Inglewood or a Brooklyn where people are just setting off fireworks all the time, where apparently, literally in Brooklyn, they're like the kinds of fireworks you see at the Macy's Day Parade, but just like someone got them and is shooting them off every <laughs> night at three in the morning. Obviously, that sucks. You're talking about like recreational, like what you can buy at the store. Not you haven't had to go do anything. Well, I'm talking, you know, you do want. I mean, you do want things that you have to cross a border to get. Where they're sure. like, a, well, not like a, not in Florida, or Alabama. But well, no, sure. no, no, not if you live in or a good state or California. <laughs> in those like, civilized places you live, right? But like in Wisconsin, you couldn't buy those. So maybe they did go to Indiana. Maybe I'm remembering wrong. It's totally possible because it wasn't me who ever got them. It was Mark Nineman's dad. Mark yeah. Nineman's dad would drive somewhere. Buy a bunch of fireworks, bring them back, and Mark and I and our friend Nishu would go out in the street and, with Mark's dad's help, blow them up on the 4th of July. And it was great. We loved it. And there would always be some older kids who would bring bottle rockets, and then we would be like, don't shoot those near us. And then they would shoot one right past us, and then we'd all run. It was great and relatively harmless. I mean, I'm sure it's not relatively harmless, and the OSHA numbers are horrible. Do you do this with your kids now? Yes. So my hope is that someone in the neighborhood has the fireworks and we can like <laughs> So you're not legally liable. I want plausible deniability. I want to be like this I see how this is cool and very fun, but it's not the <laughs> kind of cool and fun I want to be in charge of. I want to be able to shake my finger later and be like, this Oh is a yeah. Terrible yeah, yeah. idea. <laughs> yeah. So Jamila, would would you ever, ever, ever do it? No, in fact, I want fireworks to be embroiled in some sort of racist or Me Too controversy so they can be canceled for good. I don't want to ever. See, I've had enough. I, this is my it's and I don't I this year has been worse. And I've heard that because there are so many, you know, small like events. I mean, obviously, folks are not buying the fireworks that would have gone to the Macy's Day Parade. But perhaps the things that would have gone to the local church, you know, that puts on a big fireworks show yeah. somehow landed in the community and like. There's just so many of them. And it's so like, it's been going on since like, I feel like May, you know, I just need a break. It's like every few minutes, just over and over. I'm like, how could it still be gratifying? How could it still be fun? 
And every day I have to stop myself from standing on my balcony or my patio rather and yelling obscenities. That would be a great way to get a bottle rocket shot at you. Yeah. Do you like going to legitimate fireworks shows? I haven't been to one in years. When I um, growing up, I would go to Navy. I mean, not Navy Pier. They do great fireworks there mm-hmm. in Chicago too. But the Taste of Chicago, there would always be a big third uh, of July, usually like That's fireworks the Midwestern day uh, for display. Fireworks. Yeah, and that was a lot of fun. I mean, I'm also so anti patriotism that like the fireworks were just like their own pretty thing that I enjoyed, independent yeah. of like the spirit behind them. But now I'm just like, I want it all gone. Oh, I'm the Grinch. I'm the Grinch who stole fireworks. I like big fireworks shows. Like, I love them. Uh, That's unless, until I find my them safety. unbelievably boring. I'm like, they're, they're so they're... shiny and pretty, and there's music, and I... So you have to sit there for it's four so hours before they even four start. Hours? Before they start. No, and that we... means you... No, no. That means you didn't do your planning. You don't know where to go. So, you know, <laughs> a key to this is to find a place that is quick in, quick out. You uh, go, you see the show, and you get out. The best part was just, like, who you went with, you know? Like, especially when I got to be... Like, I remember one of the last ones I went to. I just graduated from high school, you know? And so, like, I was out there with my girlfriends, and there were boys out there. And that was fun for me. But the actual fireworks themselves were quite anticlimactic. Also, it was post-9-11, and I thought that a terror attack was happening. And at some point, I took off and ran. Having lived near Air Force bases, there is there is no distinguishing feature between them dropping bombs on the range and fireworks going off. So that is a legitimate, funny, but legitimate uh, concern. It's a very scary sound. The only experience we ever had, uh, Elizabeth, that was like your experience almost getting blown off your bike in Delft was when we lived in Hawaii, where New Year's Eve is basically it's similar to it what it's like in Delft and what it's like in many Asian countries places, yeah. where it's just like that is the night for fireworks they did them a little on the 4th of July they do them at other times but at, on New Year's Eve we went out to dinner with some friends on the way home from dinner this was like at 7:30 at night it was hours before midnight and just driving up the mountain to our house it was like being in a war zone there was just the, it was yeah, there was smoke. so much smoke yeah. we could yeah. barely see the road just like things would whiz past our yes, car yes. in the night and like we drove past a house that was already on fire that was something so i'm not in favor of everyone having fireworks but i am in favor of mark Nindeman's dad getting you some fireworks mm-hmm. in indiana or wherever that's where i come down on this issue Mark Nineman, give me a call. <laughs> you need some fireworks. I need some fireworks from your dad. <laughs> Today, we are excited to be joined by Marsha Chatlin. She's one of the co-hosts of The Waves and an associate professor of history and African-American studies at Georgetown University. Welcome, Marsha. Hi. Good to see you again, Jamila. Good to see you again, too. How are you making it? <laughs> it is good. I mean, I think it's so hard to talk about recent events without first doing the caveats. I'm healthy. My family's doing well. I have everything I need. But this has been quite a life moment. I joke that in the indie film about me being middle aged, this will be the part of the movie that is most gripping. So that's where I'm at. Act two crisis. (laughs) Exactly. This is definitely an act two crisis, to say the least. So in the last show before the waves hiatus, you brought up a really fascinating New York Times article by reporter David Dodge about coronavirus's impact on systems like adoption, foster care, and surrogacy. 
So we thought the mom and dad of fighting listeners would be interested in this too. Could you tell us a little bit more about what's going on uh, in regards to those things right now? Well, one of the complications that has arisen for waiting parents or people who want to become parents is that with the massive shutdowns and the changes, not only in the healthcare system, but in social services systems, for people who were embarking on the journey to parenthood, things have really been disrupted. And so I know that in my immediate circle, I have friends who were about to start fertility treatments that have been put on pause. Folks who needed minor surgery in order to boost their fertility has also been on pause because elective surgeries have been canceled in a lot of places. For me and for my husband, we are waiting parents for an international adoption. And so the um, restrictions on travel, the restrictions that have emerged with an even slower immigration system, as well as some of the requirements needed to be certified as potential uh, adoptive parents, all of those systems have kind of grinded to a halt. And so I was really actually pleased that the New York Times spent a little time focusing on this because I think a lot of the coverage, rightfully so, is about how parents are managing the lack of childcare and being at home with kids. But there's a segment of us who are in a real limbo as a result of this process. Seems like it's not just parents who are in limbo, but it's these kids who are presumably waiting for adoption opportunities. And do you have any sense about, you know, what we know about how life is going for kids in foreign countries who are maybe in the first stages of this process of finding eventual adoptive parents, but who now are also trapped in this limbo? So one of the complications of what's happening right now is in March, the State Department had issued some guidelines about if you are currently in country and you are in the process of certifying your adoption in that country, there were some mechanisms to try to fast track your process so you can get home. But there have been some cases of people who were adopting in China who arrived as um, different provinces were shutting down. And so I think a lot of the anxiety that emerges from that scenario is you've gotten so close to a very long process and now you cannot care for your adoptive children and making sure that they are in institutions that have the resources to keep everyone safe and fed and cared for during a lockdown adds another level of stress. And so anecdotally, there have been stories of people who are in country and are trying to get out and their travel process is disrupted. And also in some parts of the process, you have to appear in court in that country um, in order to complete the final step of your adoption. And if those courts are closed down, you're again in this limbo as you're trying to complete your adoption process. I know that's been a problem in the foster care system as well. And we have friends here who foster and they were waiting for a child and now with the courts closed. And they're very concerned about those kids, like where they are and if the situation they are in is getting worse. And do you have any sense about the foster care system and how it's, you know, 
adapting to this? So I know that in terms of if you are in the process of being approved to be a foster parent or adoptive parent, you have to go through something called a home study. They come to your house, they interview the family members. It requires a lot of background checks and a lot of document collection. They've eased some of the rules about notarizing. I'm like, an expert on every notary within 10 blocks of my home. I like know who all of them are because so many of these documents need to be notarized. And then if you're using them overseas, there's an additional process. And so we've been getting notices that some of the renewal paperwork that we usually have to do every year as we've been waiting, they've relaxed some of those rules because some of these items you have to get in person or you have to get a notarized letter to get them. And so social workers have been really helpful in helping people adapt. But the reality is that the actual placement process of having a child in a home is the process that's been most disrupted by this. And I think it helps illuminate not only the bureaucratic systems involved in these various different ways to create a family, but I think that as a result of the economic challenges that people are going to face, the number of children who are in a vulnerable position who could use the support of foster care or the families that have to consider decisions about the size of their family, I have a feeling that over the next few years, we're going to see more need. If there was a family that was considering taking on an adoption journey, Do you think there's a timetable at all that's reasonable, I should say? I know we don't know when this is going to be over, but just in your opinion, what do you think would be a reasonable goal for saying, okay, we can start this process officially in six months, or we can, you know, spend this time period doing research, but we shouldn't be putting any paperwork for a year? What would your thoughts be? So for any family that's discerning whether adoption is how they want to expand their family, If it's something that's been in the back of your mind, this might be a really wonderful time to learn about the process. We have been waiting, what is it, 2020? So almost four years um, this upcoming fall. And I think that unfortunately, so much of our public knowledge about adoption comes from really bad movies. (laughs) And they're always about either catastrophic experiences or experiences where adoptive parents are saviors. Mm -hmm. And um, I think like probably most parents, having children is complicated and gratifying in some moments and infuriating in others, I'm assuming, based on feedback my mom has given me on being a parent. (laughs) And And so I think that if this is something that a family is considering, this is really the time to get good information Try not to spend too much time on blogs uh, by people you don't know, information from (laughs) reputable adoption agencies. Learn the various laws about different ways of family making, because I think that for some people, this is not the first option that they want to exercise. And so when they're in the process, their anxiety and their exhaustion kind of takes over. And sometimes it's hard to get clarity, but this might be a really good time to just to learn what it's about. And I think that there's so much popular culture misrepresentation that spending time actually meeting adoptive families and, and learning from them is sometimes the best thing that you can do with this time while things are on pause. And if you are at the start of your journey and it got interrupted, I highly recommend that you... <laughs> Learn all the notaries in your neighborhood, 
find your birth certificate, find your marriage certificate, try to remember all of the addresses you ever lived in. You know, I say this not to not to boast, but to really show like how intensive the the program is. I have a PhD. I kid you not. It took me five months to do the document collection. It is like not for the faint of heart. It's just hard to do. And Mm. so those are those like bureaucratic moments that make you feel so overwhelmed. You're like, God, how can I have a kid when I can barely like notarize a document properly? But I think those are the things that are the unexciting part of it, but also is a lot of this process. And so this is the time to kind of learn how to do those things. I've heard it described by someone as it's like getting security clearance. Exactly. But you're not doing it for a job, you're doing it to raise a child, (laughs) which honestly probably is not a terrible thing. (laughs) And the other thing I think is also really interesting about this process is that, again, this is such a wonderful time for people who are considering adoption or who've had their adoptions um, put on hold to think about those little things that were not as important before. So like, my husband and I have, have different conversations now than we did before, because it was about the paperwork and the timelines. And what do you think about this? What's going to happen? And now I think we can just kind of talk about some of the things about parenting that are not on our adoption checklist, but are just really about our excitement about kids and our feelings about it. And so I think that this is such an awful time. Um, But I think to reduce the stress and anxiety of the waiting, you have to kind of see it as giving you an opportunity to reflect on parenting outside of the context of the requirements to become a parent. That's great advice. Marcia, thank you so much for joining us. This was such an informative moment and best of luck to you and to your husband and your family. And I hope that everything works out as soon as possible. And and you have a, a beautiful story to share with us the next time we see you. I hope so too. Thank you so much. This show is so helpful. We like love listening to the topics. <laughs> and so, um, and also, I just think it's amazing for people to just be open about like what people are such liars because of like Instagram and Facebook, and everyone's a perfect parent. And I just appreciate the honesty of the show. <laughs> so, Not us. Bye, everyone. Thank you, Marsha. Today we have a special guest in our Slate Pulse bonus segment: Slate staff writer Ruth Graham. Welcome, Ruth. Hello. So last Friday, Ruth posted in Slate's parenting channel asking the parents of Slate for advice. Ruth, what was happening that day and what was your dilemma? It was Friday morning and I had taken the day off work, actually. So I was slacking on my day off. But I had taken the day off because my husband and I had planned to take our four-year-old daughter on about a four and a half hour drive to visit some friends of ours outside New York. It was going to be three couples two kids, a dog, like it's hard to get all of us together. And we were going to spend the weekend together. Our best friends, we have so much fun with them. We'd been looking forward to this trip for a few months. And then the night before, the mom of the two-year-old texted us and said that he had a stomach bug that was just tearing through his daycare. The daycare teacher had told her, oh, yeah, everyone's going to get it. (laughs) Like, it's just one of these that like the second you look at someone with the bug, you come down with it. Um, And so sure enough, he had thrown up overnight and we were having to decide, should we go on this trip? Like, should we go into this hell house of sickness, you know, and get our four year old (laughs) sick, get maybe us sick? Like, are we just going to be there vomiting all weekend? So just kind of trying to decide, like, should we take this much anticipated trip, roll the dice? Because, of course, it could be fine. And 
be with our friends. I am still sort of agonizing it in hindsight, even though it's all over now. But that, that was the dilemma. And my husband and I were kind of both really torn, but we were like just on either side of the, you know, is it worth it or not dilemma. So we certainly weren't fighting about it. I was inclined to just like, let's just go for it. And he was like, oh, think about what happens if she or any of us come down with it. And we just were really, really stuck. So I took it to Slate. All right. So the uh, experts of Slate gave their advice. And in fact, I know the choice that Ruth ended up making. So I will not weigh in on this part, but I would like Jamila and Nicole to both vote. What do you think the Ruth Graham family did? Not go. Yeah, I can kind of tell that they didn't go from Ruth's tone. But I also think that not going is the decision that I probably would have made because the idea of everybody getting sick is so terrifying that, yeah, no, we wouldn't win. Nicole, you also vote not go. Is that also what you would do? I would never go under these circumstances. And I would tell people not to come to me under these circumstances because throwing up is the worst thing in the world. And it happens so often once you have kids and it sucks. And also they're dealing with a sick kid. I don't think they really want you. Who wants to host when one of them is barfing? It's worth noting that the parents did text them and say, He hasn't barfed in a while. We are totally game if you want to come, but we don't know if he might just start barfing again or if he will get sick. But we would love to see you in more game. So I They touch surfaces. That's true. That's true. I'm just saying I do think the parents made an affirmative (laughs) attempt to convey to Ruth and her husband that they still wanted this thing to happen. Yes, that's good context. Do you think that they wanted them to come or that it was a matter of we know how many moving parts are involved in getting this many people on the road to come see us and we've prepared our home minus the patient zero crawling around. But we are still willing to inconvenience our sick child. <laughs> grudgingly willing to participate <laughs> in before your- I Before I reveal what we did, I will say just for context here, we also had a phone conversation with our friends and they're very, very close friends. So I took them at their word that they said, we really do want you to come. It's also totally fine and understandable if you don't. But I, I took them at their word when they said that they were prepared and happy to host if we decided in that direction. Um, so that's my final bit of context before, should I reveal what we did? Yeah, please do. We went. Yes! <laughs> yeah! What? Hell so, yeah! <laughs> and it was oh, awesome. I you sounded And sick. I have no I, regrets. I thought you sounded sick. That's why. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm just totally healthy. To my whole family is healthy. Um, the weekend was Epically fun. It was so great. I should mention that the mom of the two-year-old got really sick late on Saturday night. (laughs) (laughs) It was a great trip. But from my perspective, (laughs) it was a total blast. We just played board games and hung out and drank champagne and laughed. And it was so much fun. We were all pretty nervous on Sunday morning. Um... I was like, am I hungry? I don't think I'm hungry. Am I getting sick? But I was fine. Definitely no regrets. I honestly don't know if it was the rational decision, but it definitely was the right decision for this weekend. We rolled the dice and we won. What I said to Ruth when she posed this in Slack um, was I asked her to think, would the fun of this much anticipated trip with your best friends be greater than the angst of your child getting their 1,000th childhood stomach bug? I think yes. I think, Nicole, the argument that kids throw up all the time is actually an argument for taking the trip. 
if there were no kids involved and it was like, oh, I might get a stomach bug, <laughs> I might be more nervous. But like when I had a four-year-old, they threw up like every two weeks. Like who gives a fuck at some point? Oh, and they it's threw up so much. way more worth it to me yeah. as a person who prizes fun with friends to like make this trip happen. Damn the torpedoes yeah. come hell or high water. And uh, I'm very proud of you, Ruth, for making that decision. Thank you, Dan. Right call. She could get this same bug in her own school on Friday and you could all be sick all weekend. And there's just no point in not doing this because it's just something that happens all the time. And that was convincing to me. So, yeah. How did you all engage the two-year-old? Because I would have treated that one like a little... Pu- I don't like... I'm not a dog person. And that child would have then became the dog for the weekend. I would just tolerable like, hello. We did. We put out a huge thing of like hand sanitizer. And when we arrived, we got in like kind of close to my daughter's bedtime. And we just like held her and kept her from all surfaces and put her in a room that they had said was, you know, safe. So then that kind of bought us another 12 hours or so of her sleeping and us kind of waiting for the germs to die on surfaces. I tried to Google that and like really couldn't come up with a definitive answer about like how (laughs) germs how viruses like the lifespan of a virus. virus exactly it's like super complicated so we just kind of we whisked her to bed that night and then we just kind of you know tried to steer clear but i tried not to let her like touch his face and then like put her hands in her mouth but she's four and a half like she's kind of old enough to control that somewhat um and so yeah i would say like cautious but not paranoid beyond that first night you nailed it so yeah we did it total triumph My answer was definitely impacted by the fact that I had a sick child, had friends coming, warned the friends, (laughs) told them they were still welcome, truly meant it, suggested that I put them up at a hotel. Yeah. And one of them had to be hospitalized (gasps) and given an IV. I'm so glad I didn't ask you. I'm so glad I didn't know about that. An adult? This was an adult? An adult. (laughs) Wow. Because I also thought, you know, as an adult, I was like, I know how to wash my hands. Like, I actually wasn't that worried about myself because you just think, you know, you know how to take care of that. But wow, that is the worst case scenario. What's funny is I bet my kids have made hundreds of my friends sick and I don't even remember. (laughs) Oh, yeah. You're a bad person. Correct. But think of all the fun you've had. I was the first one out of my crew to have a kid. So like for some years, she was the kid. You know, there's still friends that bring her around with no, they don't have a kid. So she's the kid. And I've totally brought her. I would bring her to work when she was sick. Like I didn't say, oh, I'm staying home. So my daughter was literally patient zero at a number of New York uh, media offices. (laughs) Well, I have to say the childless couple was like, oh, we're definitely coming. Like no question. So it was only us with the four-year-old wild card that that we were kind of questioning it so yeah yeah i don't know i don't know it's a roll of dice all right thank you ruth for sharing this <laughs> thank amazing you story and thanks for the great advice <laughs> incredible triumph you're welcome for my great advice ruth. <laughs> hey this is dan again that's our show thanks for sticking with us through this wild year of parenting definitely the wildest year of parenting i've ever had and i traveled around the world with my kids for a year we'll have lots to talk about in the new year about vaccines, about returning to school, about everything that's going to happen to our families, good and eh, still probably bad. Remember, if you need advice, just email us at slate.com or post it to the Slate Parenting Facebook group. Just search for Slate Parenting on Facebook. And hey, if you haven't already, please give yourself 
a gift for 2021 and subscribe to mom and dad are fighting on your podcast platform of choice. That way you won't miss an episode. Hope you enjoyed hearing the best of plus. If you like the show and you want to support us, sign up for slate plus. It's the best way to do that. It only costs $35 for your first year. And besides fun bonus content each week, like what you've just heard today, you'll also get ad free versions of this show and other lesser slate shows. Plus a ton of other benefits like reading slate's great journalism without hitting the paywall. So support mom and dad are fighting go to slate.com slash mom and dad plus join slate plus today mom and dad are fighting is produced by the great rosemary belson or jamila lemieux elizabeth newcamp and our many wonderful guest hosts throughout the year and of course for shasha leonard i'm dan clase <laughs>